1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for meeting us here. Thank you um, for your word. Pray for Alan as he teaches us. I pray that we will not be distracted and that um, your, your word will just penetrate our hearts this morning. Um, we love you and we praise you. Amen. Okay, so we are continuing our series in the epistles to the Thessalonians. And what we've been looking at together over the past few weeks is how Paul is reminding the people in this church that he planted that because they now belong to Christ, they have a new identity, they have new hearts, and therefore they have new attitudes toward various things in this world. And particularly, he's been addressing their attitudes here with regard to, to sex, to money, your job, to work, and then to death. And, and what we've seen uh, is that the Christian really is, is someone who has a radically different viewpoint on all of these issues than the world around us. That sex is a way to express and bind a lifelong commitment of intimacy and love where we partner together with God to lead our spouses toward the beauty of all that they will become when they finally are healed and are brought to heaven. And we've seen that our work is not just about getting money so that we can go do what we really want to do in life, nor is our work about gaining a sense of identity but so we can feel better about ourselves, but rather we, we find great joy and great delight in being able to work with our hands, to create things like our Father is a creator, to harness the raw materials of this world in order to make it a better place for everyone. And see, as we said a couple of weeks ago, for Paul's world, and frankly for ours as well, it's not much different today, sex was a cheap commodity that was freely given away to others, whereas money was something that was considered sacred, private, mine. And Paul has been showing us here as we've worked through this passage that how for the Christian it's to be the exact opposite. That for us, sex is sacred and money is something that we should be able to freely give away. And so now today we're coming to the third of those subjects and that is the subject of death where apparently from the way Paul writes here, he has heard back from some in this church that they, were, they had been told that Jesus had already returned and they missed it. How would you like to hear that message? And so, we, so he's trying to help them to understand how death works in the life of a believer. How are we to think about it and relate to it? And, and what will it be like when Jesus actually does return? Now, you know, we're often reminded that there are only two inevitable things in life, death and taxes. But 
it is possible to cheat on your taxes, but you can never cheat death. It comes to us all. In fact, uh, 2024 is a year when I have to face the fact that I'm becoming the same age as my mother when she died. Uh, and that's a bit sobering thing to think about. It makes you stop uh, and wonder and ponder life in a little bit different way. And so I think it's important for us that we talk here openly about death because it's not a subject that we normally like to talk about. Uh, it always makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, and you know, it's ironic that we live in a culture that is so proud of itself for being open and free to shamelessly talk about sex and gender and identity and orientation, but we're more afraid than ever to talk about death. And our, our ancestors lived, I think, under a more conscious awareness of what it means to live under the authority of God. And so they kept their talk about sex to a minimum, but they lived in the constant reality of death's door all around them. And so I think we need to be spurred on to talk about death. And so Paul here helps us to be able to do that. And essentially what he says here is, guys, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who have died or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. See, Paul is calling us here to grieve over death, but to grieve with hope. And by the way, everything that we're going to be saying here about death, I think it, it is just as true um, when facing physical death as it is for facing our many emotional deaths. The deaths that we face every day uh, over a lost dream or a, a crushed hope or a broken relationship. See, some of you are living in deep darkness today, not because you've lost a, a loved one, but because of some trauma, some great disappointment, because you've been hurt or abused or taken advantage of by somebody, and that's, that's a death. See, we face physical death on rare occasions, but we face emotional death on almost a daily basis. And so I want you to keep that in mind, that aspect of death, as we walk through this passage together. Now, again, the first thing that Paul tells us here about death is that death should always bring grief. Christians are not only not exempt from that grief, but we're actually called by God to enter into it. And we're supposed to enter into it as the only rational and sane response to death. Listen, far too many Christians I found through the years are afraid to deal with the grief of death. And so they soften it by using platitudes like, you know, well, death is just a part of life. Um, it's just a passage into another world. Um, death is only the beginning, so just be happy for them. It's just a gateway to heaven. But listen, all of that is a load of crap when you are facing death yourself and you know it. Because everything inside of you is screaming that this is not right. This shouldn't be. Death should not end somebody's life. Death should not close the door forever on a relationship that, that I had with this person. It's wrong. There's something broken about the whole concept of what death is, does to us. And there's no rational way to make it sound better than it is. Listen, every one of us naturally knows that death is not natural, that we were not built to die. Eternity has been placed in our hearts by God with a soul, and we know it. Because listen, anybody who's had to face death themselves personally, you, you, you just know it's wrong, and it angers us, and it startles us. 
There's something deep inside of us that, that cries out, this shouldn't be. Listen, death is not natural. In fact, it's deeply unnatural. Something incredibly valuable has been stolen from us. And the finality of it brings about deep grief. Now, one of the things that this is telling us is something that uh, counselors have known for years, and that is that grief is a necessary component to being able to deal with death. Because you see, the more that you deny it, the more you pretend as if it, it, it really isn't true, the more you dismiss it as something natural, the more you stamp down the tears and hold back the weeping and somehow try to be strong and, and bold and hold it together, the more dangerous that becomes for your soul. Because eventually the truth of it will hit you. And no matter how casual or ordinary or even denying you might be toward death, you must grieve it if you ever want to find a healthy, healthy healing from it. And, and listen, that's often been hard at times for Christians because there are, even within the church, many well-meaning, well-intended fools who will tell you that Christians shouldn't grieve like that. That you should just pretend to be happy because, well, they're in heaven and everything's wonderful and just celebrate all the great memories. And yeah, sure, you should do that. But, but grief is good. Grief is necessary. Grief is critical if you're ever going to be able to deal effectively with the trauma of death. Nicholas Wolterstorff was a professor at Yale, and he lost his 23-year-old son to a climbing accident, and this is what he wrote about it. And this is some honest grief. He said, there's a hole in the world now. In the place where he was, there's now just nothing. A center like no other of memory and hope and knowledge and affection which once inhabited this earth is gone. Only a gap remains. Perspective on this world, unique in this world, which once moved about within this world, has just been rubbed out. Only a void is left. There's nobody now who saw what he saw, who knows what he knew, who remembers what he remembered, who loves what he loved. A person, an irreplaceable person, is gone. Questions I have can never now get answers. The world is emptier. My son is gone. Only a hole remains, a void, a gap, never to be filled. Now, is something like that too much for a Christian to say? I don't, I don't think so, because that is raw honesty. That is the absolute truth. Death is incredibly unnatural. It is furiously invasive. And there's no turning back the clock. Once they're gone, they're gone. And that is something that's worthy of tremendous grief. And again, the same holds true for your emotional losses. They deserve your grief as well. The evil things that were done to you were wrong. It never should have happened. And, and you can't just bury that stuff. You have to get it out and grieve it. And grieve it deeply. Listen, the Bible calls death our greatest enemy. It's destructive. It's ugly. It separates people who belong together. In fact, there's a place where C.S. Lewis talks about the death of one of his friends, Charles, and how he noted that in his passing, he not only lost his friendship with Charles, but he also lost aspects of his living friends that only Charles could bring out in them. And that part was dead to him now as well. Death is incredibly devastating. There's nothing more jarring than watching the light go out 
in the eyes of someone we love. When they go from here to gone, never to return in an instant. And even if you're expecting it, even, even if you're prepared for it, it just hits you like nothing else. And of course, the world likes to invent all sorts of silly coping mechanisms to somehow you know, soften the blow of the loss. You know, I can just feel they're right here with me in this room. They're, they're watching over me. Uh, they, they came to me in a bird at the window, and I knew it was them. They're now my guardian angel watching over me. But the reality is they're gone forever from this world. And as a result, we have lost part of ourselves. Listen, the only place in the Bible we have recorded of Jesus ever crying was over the death of his friend Lazarus. And I don't think it was because he missed him, because he knew he was going to resurrect him in a couple of minutes. But there was something deeper that he was grieving over. He knew that this was not the way that he had created mankind. And it grieved him how our sin had destroyed the beauty of what he had created. Listen, death is not natural, but grief is. In fact, grief is healthy. You need to grieve in the face of death. I mean, if you think about it, that, that's the whole reason why we even have funerals, right? It gives us a chance to process our grief and to be able to do it together in community where we're surrounded by others who grieve like us and who can help share the load of that heavy loss. That's why we do that. And listen, if you don't grieve over death, if you bury it and try to ignore its painful effects, you will begin to die yourself on the inside because of that lie. In fact, it, it kind of makes me wonder if we shouldn't have more funerals. I'm not sure that's the right word for it. Something like a funeral. Whenever we face the death of some emotional trauma, a, a painful divorce, the, the quietness of an empty nest, uh, the physical or sexual abuse of a spouse, the death of a child in the womb, things that we tend to hide and manage in the quietness of our own souls, Maybe some of you need to gather a few close friends and have a funeral of your own to help mourn some of the things that you've lost and to be able to grieve openly together about the loss of those things. I think it could be quite healthy. We'll have to come up with a new term because we don't have funerals for those kind of things, but maybe we should because death calls for grief. And don't let anybody ever tell you to buck up and get over it. Grieve. In the Bible, if you read through it, they actually hired professional grievers. That's how important it was in that culture to be able to experience and to highlight and to bring out the agony and the grief of what's happening. So anyhow, you get the picture. Grief is good. Grief is necessary. Grief is helpful. Grief is biblical. Even Jesus grieved. Now, that's the first thing Paul tells us here, to grieve. But, he says, don't grieve like the rest of the world who has no hope beneath their grief. See, Paul is calling us to grieve with hope. Now, why? Because we know that there's life beyond the grave. We know that for fellow believers, we will be reunited with them once again. Death is not the end of life. See, Paul's main point here in this passage is that one day there's gonna be a joyous family reunion over which God himself will preside as father. And that's what gives us the hope that we need to face death. And though it's not the, the point of this particular passage, Paul goes on to tell us elsewhere that this also works in the same way with our emotional trauma as well. 
that God is taking every bad thing that has happened to us, every bad thing we've brought on ourselves through our own stupidity, as well as every evil that's been perpetuated against us. And he takes all of that and he weaves it back into our life story in such a way that it's redeemed. In fact, somehow God says he's gonna make it better for us than if we had never faced that ugly trauma in the first place. And he does that with physical death in heaven and he does that with emotional deaths both here on earth and one day in heaven. Listen, the hope of the resurrection is what allows us to grieve and not be overcome by it. Janie and I were recently watching a British show. We still kind of hang on to those. And this, this was uh, starring and directed by Ricky Gervais, and it was called Afterlife. And I would highly recommend that you not watch it. Um, it, it, it was so depressing we couldn't even finish it because it's all about the hopelessness of death after his wife dies. And after she dies, he decides he's gonna kill himself. There's no more reason to go on, but his dog won't let him, right? Because he's hungry and he needs to be fed, all right, tomorrow. Because he's restless and needs to go for a walk. Okay, tomorrow, we'll, we'll get around to this. And so he keeps putting it off. And eventually he simply decides to pursue a living death. To live a life where he doesn't care about anybody or anything or about any of the consequences of his choices anymore. And, and the show slowly starts to move toward redemption and healing, and then it drifts right back into the hopelessness of death. But because as he says over and over again, there is no afterlife, which means there's no hope, which means that life is pointless. And in the end, his conclusion in the show is this, death is only good for the one who dies because they're dead, they don't know it but it sucks for those of us who have to live with that emptiness and it's hopeless. And he says the only solution is death. Now, listen, Ricky Gervais is right. Life beyond the grave is the critical issue for us as we face death. And if there is life after death, then there's hope. And if there isn't, then there is no hope and there is no meaning. So just be a jerk and abuse people however you feel until you die. You see, emotionally, we might feel that hopeless in the face of death. We might be ready to just give in and give up on life and, and to give up trying to find any meaning and purpose, but few of us can live in that place with any consistency because deep down, everybody just knows that life does have meaning and it does have purpose. And we know it's not just random chaos and we need that hope. C.S. Lewis, in reflecting on the death of his own wife, said this, if she is not now, that is, if she's gone, if she's, there is no afterlife, then she never was. I mistook a person for a cloud of atoms, and if life ends at death, then it doesn't amount to very much. See, Lewis is saying, if, if, if death really is the end, then our lives really don't matter, and there's no real value to our lives. We have no real significance. We're just a bunch of atoms and chemicals, and as he concludes, that means we're just arisen by chance without purpose and now gone also without purpose. Uh, in speaking at his brother's funeral, Tim Keller says this. He says, dead is when you're trying to earn your salvation or designing your own. Dead is when you never weep with joy over what God has done for you. Dead is when God is never more than an abstraction or an idea. The gospel humbles and emboldens and melts us with understanding about what Jesus has done on the cross. Dead is when we don't know God as Father, but only as boss or a vague influence. And he said, my brother was dead because he had just recently given his heart to Jesus, but now 
he's alive. Christians don't fall asleep when they die. That's when they finally wake up. My brother hasn't gone into the cold and dark. He's gone into warmth and life where he perceives God in all five senses, or maybe even a thousand or a million senses we can hardly fathom in the cold and dark of this fallen world. Listen, either life is totally meaningless or it's totally meaningful. And it all depends on what death is. If there's nothing beyond the grave, then life this side is devoid of all real meaning and purpose. And Ricky Gervais is right. Just do what you feel. Who cares if you're a selfish jerk or if you're selfish or abusive to other people? In the end, it's not going to matter anyway. If life has no meaning, then there's no basis or reason for addressing any injustice in the world. Because it's not really injustice. It's just the strong eating the weak, and that's just natural. If life has no meaning, then there's no reason to ever employ delayed gratification for something better later on, right? So just pursue your passions and damn the results. If, if life has no meaning, then it doesn't matter whether you sacrifice and care for the poor or whether you take advantage of them for your own profit. It doesn't matter. Listen, if life has no meaning, then all of our attempts to give our lives some meaning are just a pathetic reaching for something that doesn't even exist. And all our grief has no significance. It's illogical. And yet, everything inside of us screams that that's not true. We know that life is meaningful. We know it's not pointless. We need to believe that our loved ones live on somehow or all meaning from that life is gone. Everything they were, everything they did, everything they said was pointless if they're simply gone. It's just an illusion. And yet, deep down, we know that their existence was not just a waste of space. Of course it was a real person. Of course they brought great meaning. Of course they changed my life. Of course they mattered. Of course they had significance and therefore... Of course, we should have tears and sorrow. It's appropriate. And of course, it means that we do have hope. Now listen, there are still others out there who fear death for another reason. And they fear death because they're afraid they actually might meet God. And they're afraid of how that meeting is going to go. <laughs> right? You know, deep down, they're afraid that I just, I haven't lived right. Maybe all the good things that I've done aren't going to be enough on that day. Maybe God's just going to be mad and throw the book at me. And therefore, as a result, their hope becomes that maybe there won't be an afterlife because I don't want to have to deal with God. And I'm hoping that death is simply, it's just darkness. It's the end where none of my misdeeds will ever be remembered and no sin ever lives on. Listen, for this skeptic who's opted for denial, there are really no lasting consequences for any of the choices they make while they're here on earth. So just live for yourself. Live for your own happiness. And don't worry about anybody else. Put yourself and your own happiness ahead of everybody else's. And even if you do care for other people along the way and try to be a decent human being, it's really deep down just to build your own reputation where people value you for being a good person, right? And yet, even the skeptic cannot live honestly in that place. Because everything inside of every person screams that my choices do matter. That it is wrong to oppress people. It's wrong to kill people. It's wrong to treat people like trash. Life is not a free-for-all where you can just do whatever you want. And so the skeptic can't even live consistently in that denial. Listen, the Bible's very clear on this fact that we will all stand before God one day. 
and we will all have to give an account for our lives. Paul tells us here that we will all meet Jesus face to face, either at his second coming or at our death. And so even those who do believe in Jesus often have at least a little bit of anxiety about this upcoming encounter because we all deep down know just how screwed up we really are on the inside. And of course, because we also live in a Bible Belt culture that tells us that if you want to be able to stand before God on that day, you better live a good life here and now. You better make sure that you please God with everything that you do and say. There are certain sins that you must avoid and you better love and care for people properly. And see, deep down, we all know, but, but that's not me, right? I, I haven't lived the way I ought to. And, and I'm afraid that when I get there, it won't be enough and he won't let me in. So what does Paul say we need to do to address these fears? Verse 14, he says, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Listen, long before Jesus is a righteous judge on that final day, he is first and foremost your brother who lived the perfect life that you owe to God and who died the death that your rebellion against him deserves. And he gives all of that to you as a free gift. His life for yours. Your sin for his perfection. The most unjust exchange in the history of the world, and it's called grace. And so Paul reminds us here as we contemplate the prospect of having to stand before God the judge, remember your brother Jesus has lived that life on your behalf. Remember the death that he died died on your behalf. Remember that he rose again to finally conquer your greatest enemy, death. See, your elder brother has fulfilled all of God's commands in your place. He paid for every condemnation that you rightly deserve. I mean, yeah, your your life has a lot to account for. We all do. But if you're resting your hopes in Jesus, it's all paid in full. If you're resting in Jesus, no amount of judgment can hold you back. Because even though you rightly deserve that judgment, Jesus stands as your advocate to remind the Father constantly, paid in full. I did it for them. It's paid in full. And you cannot hold that against him. In fact, if you think about it, it would actually be unjust for God to take two uh, payments for the same sin. It would be unjust for God to ever be sad or disappointed or frustrated with you when you don't live the way that you ought to. It's paid in full. It's gone as far as the east is from the west. He remembers it no more. Those are his words. Listen, even if you still have a lot of changing to do when you die, even if you die with unconfessed sin, in your heart. See, the judgment day is not for good people to make it through. It's not for people who've done enough. It's it's not for people who are really sorry and plead with God for mercy. It's none of that nonsense. Your life is either resting in Jesus and you're covered by the sacrifice of his life and death for you, or you're resting in what you've done. And there's not enough good deeds in the world to cover that over. And listen, let let me just warn you at this point because this is the heart of our religious Appalachian culture. It's not enough for you simply to believe in Jesus to escape that judgment. There's a lot of people who've grown up in this culture who know Jesus, know all about him. Very often they've invited them into their heads. They've invited them into their religious part of their life, but they've never actually died to themselves. They've never given their hearts fully over to him. I mean, listen, the Bible tells us that Satan and his demons, they know all about Jesus. They understand his sacrifice. 
They understand the gospel better than any of us do, but it doesn't save them because it's not their life. It's not what they're resting in. And if you haven't personally come to the point in your life where you're willing to die for all the good pictures of the good life that your heart is telling you can be found if you could just get out there and work hard enough at it. If you haven't come to the place yet where you see that all that you need is need. See, not need plus a good job, not need plus a great spouse, not need plus my best moral efforts, but as the hymn writer put it, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I claim. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Listen, if you've not yet come to the end of yourself and given yourself and all of your hopes and your dreams and your longings over to God, then you are not yet in Christ. You might believe in Jesus. You might accept the good news of the cross, but you're still in danger of showing up on that judgment day without the only covering that can make you clean. And it's Jesus. It's not Jesus plus anything. And and that's why Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount that you can only enter his kingdom through the narrow gate because it's so narrow, it strips away every ounce of yourself and clings only to Jesus. It's the only way that we can make it. Now, because of all this, Paul doesn't stop there because he moves on to tell us that those who have died resting in Christ, they've merely fallen asleep. And I, I don't think that Paul is employing a euphemism here to try and soften the blow of death by saying, they're just asleep, it's okay. But I think rather what he's doing is he's telling us that th- what the power of this coming resurrection is like. Because he says, for those who are in Christ, death is just like a sleep. It's just a temporary thing for those who rest in Jesus. Death is harmless to us. And here's the scenario that Paul lays out for us. He says, those who have died resting in Jesus, their their real self, their their true self, their their soul is immediately in the presence of Jesus when, when you die. And then one day when Jesus returns, they will come back with Jesus to receive their new bodies, a perfected, resurrected body that is never subject to decay or sin anymore. And then those who are still alive on that day will be caught up with that host in heaven and will meet Jesus in the clouds in the air. Now, what are the implications, right? Great scenario. What implications can we draw from this? And the first thing I want you to see here is that when we think of heaven, we don't primarily think of a place, but we think of a person, all right? And having grown up in the church, I can tell you that almost exclusively when the church talks about heaven, we're talking about a place, right? What's it going to be like? Is it going to be clouds? Is it going to be sunny? We're always thinking of a place. The Bible doesn't. The Bible says it's about a person because we will be with Jesus and we will be reunited with our loved ones where we are completely ourselves transformed physically and spiritually with all of our imperfections healed, all of our annoying habits redeemed, all of our fears calmed sitting down together at a great banquet feast that will go on forever. Everything that you've ever dreamed of doing, everything you've ever dreamed of becoming, it's finally yours. And you will not have missed out on a thing because it's all realized in Jesus. Now that's the first thing he tells us. But secondly, when Paul uses this phrase here, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, it it really is a technical term that would have evoked familiar imagery for the readers 
of that letter, but is kind of lost on us. And, and so this is what we need to understand here, because what it's referring to is how when a dignitary was coming to a city, the leaders of that city would go out and greet that dignitary, um, bring him gifts, shower him with gifts, and then would escort them back into the city. And listen, here's the implications of this. What Paul is telling us is that when Jesus comes back again one day, we will not join Jesus and go up into heaven with him, but we will go out to meet him and greet him for the descent back to a renewed heavens and a renewed earth because the earth itself will be made new and there will be no more crying or pain or sorrow or death. The curse will finally be removed and everything will be healed because listen, Jesus doesn't uh, take us to heaven. Jesus brings heaven down with him and transforms everything in the process. Now listen, one of the implications I think of this is that we should be a people who are a far deeper engagement with our world than we often are. For those who believe that life is meaningless, that life does not go on after death, why should we care about the environment? Who cares if it falls apart, right? Why should we care about injustice? Why should we care about anything besides me? Uh, unless, you know, the caring is the way I get an identity, which means I don't really care about anything except my own reputation. But listen, because we are a people who are never leaving this world, we should view our task on earth as those who are preparing for his coming because we're getting ready for him. He's coming to renew everything. And that gives us hope. It gives us the hope that we need to work for real justice and real love because in the end, justice will prevail. Love will prevail. In the end, people are so valuable that they live on forever. They have to. They're glorious creatures made after the image of God. And of course, this is a transformation that only Jesus can complete, but he calls us as his family members to start this process now, to begin the healing today. It's a call to a wise care for our environment. It's a call to bring justice to the oppression in this world. It's a call to care for the needs of the poor. It's a call to love the ones that nobody loves. Now, some people might look at all of this as fanciful dreaming, hopeful wishing that life goes on and therefore has meaning. And, and I'll, I'll admit, sometimes it's hard to fathom heaven. It makes your head spin to think about it. But as C.S. Lewis again puts it, he says, now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. And you see, the question that I want to press upon each one of you is which view best fits with the reality of my experience? See, do I feel deep in my heart as if life is meaningful, that there is a purpose behind this life? Which view best fits with what my heart most longs to be true, that I was built for God after his very image. And therefore I was built for glory and, and, and I matter and my life is significant. And I was designed to honor that image of God in the community of people around me and value their dignity instead of merely using them for my own purposes. Listen, this is the world we know that our hearts were built for. As C.S. Lewis says, it's a song that we're born remembering. It's a longing we can't deny because deep down we know this is what we were made for. And it's all possible because of the sacrifice of the life and the death of our big brother, Jesus. 
who has paid our debt in full so that even death itself can't keep us away from God. It makes us clean and spotless and righteous before the eyes of God. Listen to how the writer of the Hebrews puts it here as we close. He says, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is our hope. And this is what allows us to grieve everything that's broken in this world, even as we await with hopeful expectation for the renewal and the healing of every bit of it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help for us to understand and face physical death, emotional deaths, traumas, all the things that come at us that are so devastating about things that are lost that can never be reclaimed. And I pray that you'd help for us to see that you are the healer of everything broken, that you are in that process of bringing healing now to our hearts, and one day we will be absolutely perfected in your presence where none of these remnants of hurt and pain and struggle will have any claim over our hearts anymore because everything has been renewed. Everything has been made right. Everything sad has come untrue. And I pray, Lord, that you would make this our hope as we face honestly with our grief uh, the struggles of this life, that we would grieve, but not as those who have no hope, that we would be able to grieve as those who know what's coming, and it's so much better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.